Something I only do every once in a while, every several years, but because it suited this year's particular topic for our Bible conference, we are looking at Psalm 44. Open with me to the 44th Psalm, please. Heavenly Father, we ask you to meet with us now in the power and presence of your Spirit and your grace and mercy. Open our eyes, our minds, and above all our hearts to the glory and the meaning of your Word. More than this, Lord God, we ask that we not be only hearers of your Word, but doers also. In Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake. Amen. When people come to our seminars or to our conferences, and we have them in Ireland now, in Scotland, and so forth, people are encouraged to do things like get a working knowledge of Greek or Hebrew. You really only need a basic knowledge to be able to use a lexical commentary. Not a commentary, but the software programs. Even if you know the alphabet and some basic rules of grammar and some keywords, you can learn enough basic Greek or basic Hebrew on the internet these days to be able to use not a concordance but a lexical, a lexical concordance. It's different. It's not this big nightmare people think of. Not everybody has to be able to read it or speak it. But everybody can become functional in exegesis. We encourage our people to go into the original languages. We want our people to know and understand church history. We want our people to know and understand the Jewish background of the New Testament and how Jesus fulfills the old. We want our people to be keenly aware that we're in the last days, and to be aware of the prophetic purposes of God for both Israel and the church. We emphasize a lot of things that would have been emphasized at better times in church history. But these are not the better times of church history. These are the worst times of church history. We're looking at a Britain that is again post-Christian neo-pagan. Islam, a vile religion that persecutes Christians, is allowed to misrepresent itself as being tolerant when not a single Muslim country in the world will give Christians the rights that they demand in the Christian world. Where they will riot in the streets of our capital demanding the murder of a British citizen for writing a book. Where they'll riot in the streets of Bradford where they'll blow up an airplane over Lockerbie and say we're a religion of peace and tolerance unable to show you one example where they will protect the rights of Christians. And then you'll see so-called Christians scrambling to their defense. We see the growth of cults, even ones that have no credibility when you examine their apologetic or lack of one, like the Mormons. Biggest Mormon temple in the world now in Chorley, England, overlooking the motorway. Bigger than the one in Salt Lake City. Incredible. Of course, we see again the neo-paganization in the absolute sense, the growth of Wicca, New Age, even Druidism, to the point where the leader of the national church of this country is a Druid, the son of a Druid god and a Druid high priest, gets dressed like a Druid, puts on his Anglican frock on one day and his Druid frock on another. And the man who writes Alpha Courses recommends his books. And people think everything is wonderful. Most evangelicals, I guarantee you, most groups who even come to a place like this don't even think of these things. 
It doesn't even cross their mind. They're not even living in the real world. They don't see what's happened to the nation and what is happening to its church. And of course, if we point these things out, you have a Jeremiah complex. You're a prophet of doom. I would point out to people that Jeremiah was told he would save his own neck as his booty. It's the people who know these things and prepare for them who will survive, the Word of God says. Yet, who not looking upon England, Scotland, Wales, the English-speaking democracies at large, the United States, etc., but we're talking about Britain, can't grieve when you look at our heritage. The psalmist was going through much the same thing in a mosquito to the sons of Korach in Psalm 44, where he remembers the former deliverance in light of the present trouble. And the Hebrew text is much more poetic and much more emotive than the English. O oh God, we have heard with our ears. We heard from our fathers. They told us the work that you did in their days. In the days of old, thou with thine own hand didst drive out the nations. Then thou didst plant them. Thou didst afflict the people. Then thou didst spread them abroad. By their own sword they did not possess the land and their own arm did not save them. But thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy presence, for thou didst favor them. Thou art my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through thee we will push back our adversaries. Through thy name we will trample down those who rise up against us. And then he goes on, talking about what has happened to the nation and the people. Verse 10, Thou dost cause us to turn back from the adversary. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. Thou dost give us a sheep to be eaten, and hast scattered us among the nations. Thou dost sell thy people cheaply, and hast not profited by their sale. <coughs> Thou dost make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. Thou dost make us a byword among the nations a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we've not forgotten thee and have not dealt falsely with thy covenant. Our heart has not turned back and our steps have not deviated from the way. Yet thou hast crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us in the shadows of death. And he goes on and on, begging God to rise up and redeem his people as he did in times past. The text opens in the original language very, very powerfully. Ki oznenu anaknu shumanu miavotenu, ekavashta adonayat oyevenu tachtenu, avalakshav oyevenu hemkavshu otanu. With our ears we heard from our fathers, we heard from our fathers, O oh God. With our ears we heard from our fathers. They told us what you did in their days. How you drove out our enemies. How you trampled them under our feet. But now, our enemies, they conquer us. And we are mocked. He goes on saying that we become a laughing stock and a derision. 
On any given Sunday afternoon, you must merely go to Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, London. You'll see Muslims mocking Christianity. Look, you have homosexual bishops. Look, you ordain homosexuals. To them, this was prima facie evidence that their religion is morally superior to ours. They laugh. They mock. When unsaved people see the money preachers on television from South Africa and America, imported by the Elam movement into this country and onto the so-called God Channel, they mock. And I cannot blame them. If by the grace of God I was not already saved and I saw such spectacles on television, I would mock as well. But when I see unsaved people seeing this abomination, I can't mock anything except what's become of us. It's terrible what's happened. A scoffing and a derision to those around us. A byword among the nations. Do you see them? Look at their churches are splitting over the ordination of homosexuals. Look, their leaders are pagans. They turn their backs on their own heritage. They're defeated. The cults are growing. Islam is growing. Eastern religion is growing. New Age is growing. But what else does it say? You have given our enemies the spoil. The biggest Christian church in the middle of Manchester, England is now the Islamic Academy of Great Britain. All over this country there are churches that have been turned into not only discount warehouses to sell beds and nightclubs. I can show you churches, Baptist churches, that have been turned into mosques. In London, the Bahani Center is in what was once a thriving Baptist church. The enemies go forward. And instead of falling down and weeping, we are told to get down and laugh. No revival has ever begun with people laughing. Liars from hell who Satan sent to this nation to stand in its pulpits and tell us that lie, that revivals begin with laughing, are self-evident to what they are. They're the messengers from hell. No revival has ever begun with people laughing. As we looked at it last night with Duncan Campbell and with Evan Roberts, every revival rather begins with people weeping over what has happened to this nation. What we heard from our fathers, wrote the psalmist. We heard from our fathers. We heard from our fathers how you conquered our enemies and gave us victory for your glory. But now our enemies, they trample us under their feet and we are mocked. We're given over to derision. He would have remembered the stories of King David and of Joshua and of the great judges like Gideon. Now it's all history. A history and a heritage is a wonderful thing if you live up to it. But when you forget it and turn your back on it, it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. My own family, we have allegiances to three nations. To the United States, where I was born. To the United Kingdom, where my family was from. And to Israel, where my children are born. 
No three nations in history have had more of a biblical influence in their foundations as nations than Israel, the United Kingdom, and the United States of America. Three backslidden nations in whose history the hand of God was acutely evident. And now God is removing His hand rapidly. For the same reason He took His hand from His own people, Israel. We are warned in Romans 11. If this can happen to the natural branches, if God will do this to His own people after the flesh, the Jews, the original people of the book of the covenant, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if He will take His hands off them, who is immune? God, however, promised Israel that one day He would turn His grace back to them. The question I have is, will one day he turn his grace back to Britain? To America? I heard from our fathers. All they could do is remember what they heard from their fathers. Our fathers. Who are our fathers? John Wycliffe was one of our fathers. The founder and leader of the Lollards was one of our fathers. An educated man who stood up in a dark age and said, we have to go back to the Word of God. The church is corrupt. People followed him knowing they would be persecuted, knowing they would be imprisoned, knowing they would be dispossessed of what they owned. Walking in his footsteps some centuries later, 200 years later, was God's outlaw, William Tyndale. He was murdered. Why was he murdered? No, why was he willingly murdered? He was murdered so you and I could read this book in the English language. That's why he was murdered. When I see a copyright on the front page of a Bible, I get disgusted. I thought God owned the copyright on his word. I wonder if John Wycliffe was worried about his copyright when he and his followers were being hunted down for having translated it. I wonder if William Tyndale was worried about his commercial publishing rights when he was being burned alive. It was different then. The gospel wasn't a business. Music ministry meant music ministry, not Christian pop charts. Christian publishing meant Christian publishing, not a commercial enterprise. It was different then. It was very different. 
I heard from our fathers, Lord God. I heard from our fathers the way it was in their day. I know what it was like in their day. How you threw back the powers of darkness. How you took their Bibles and put it into the hands of the ordinary people in this country. And how you gave your people victory. I heard from our fathers. Our fathers. Our fathers. This is the 39 articles of the Church of England. It's what the Anglicans ostensibly claim to believe and be based on. In principle, at least in theory, it's their raison d'etre. There's only one problem I really have with these 39 articles. There's only one thing I don't like about them. There's only one thing I object to. They don't believe them anymore. That's my problem. But the 39 articles, I don't, I don't have a real argument. Certain points of doctrine that are peripheral, yes, but uh, in substance, I have no problem. I agree. But I'm not even an Anglican and I agree. How come the Anglicans don't seem to agree? How can they forget what they're supposedly based on? The present Archbishop of Canterbury is again a Druid, who, while a bishop, ordained homosexuals. His predecessor was the Right Honorable George Carey, whom I had a very unpleasant confrontation with over various issues in Tel Aviv. He wrote this book, The Meeting of Waters. How to go back to Rome. It's an atlas, a roadmap, a guide back to the papacy. The first thing you need to do is get rid of these. Because although when he became Archbishop of Canterbury, he pledged himself to uphold these, what he said with his mouth and what he did with his pen were two different things. And he claimed to have been an evangelical. A born-again charismatic. The first thing he did after becoming Archbishop was go into the public media with the chief rabbi of this country and denounce giving the gospel to Jewish people. Turning his back on the salvation of Israel. Defying the plain and clear teaching of the Word of God. And I remember Anglican saying, oh, isn't it wonderful? The Archbishop is born again. If Satan has an evangelical like that in Lambeth, he doesn't need any liberals. The Archbishop of Canterbury. Let me read you something from the Foster's Book of Martyrs. It's the final testimony of the first evangelical Archbishop of Canterbury. His name is Thomas Cranmer. He's at the stake. 
And as for the Pope, I refute him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all of his false doctrine. And when he began to speak more of the sacrament, of the papacy, some of them began to cry out, yelp and bawl, and especially Cole cried out upon him, stop the heretic's mouth and take him away. And then being pulled down from the stage, Cranmer was led to the fire, accompanied with those friars, vexing, troubling, and threatening him most cruelly, to whom he answered nothing, but directed all his talk to the people. And when he came to the place where the holy bishops and martyrs of God, you Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned before him. Kneeling down, he prayed to God, and not long tarrying in his prayers, putting off his garments to his shirt, he prepared himself to death in Jesus Christ. Amen. That is the first evangelical Archbishop of Canterbury. This was the last one. I heard from our fathers, Lord God. I heard from our fathers what it was like, what you did in their day. When Latimer and Ridley were being burned alive by the Church of Rome under Queen Mary, they said, Play the man. For tonight we kindle a flame in England that neither the powers of hell shall be able to extinguish. I heard from our fathers. That's the way it was. But that's not the way it is now. I heard from our fathers. No one can understate the mistakes of the Puritans. But neither can anyone ignore the treasures they left us. You want to read a book worth reading. We don't have it, but get a copy of The Christian and Complete Armor by William Gurnall. Richard Baxter was one of our fathers. Joseph Aileen was one of our fathers. John Owen was one of our fathers. Quite a man of God, Richard Baxter. I know what they were. Not being a Calvinist myself, that doesn't mean I can't appreciate their good points. What they did. What they stood for. What they believed. You know what the Reformed churches in this country are like now? The fellowship I attend in Surrey was begun by people who left the local United Reformed Church because that movement began ordaining homosexuals. Such an idea would have been unthinkable in the days of Baxter or William Gurnall. Now they say they're reformed? Reformed? I've read Joseph Alien. Read John Owen. I've read Richard Baxter. I've read William Gurnall. I can't find anything about sexual perversion in the church with the blessing of the church. I can't find such things. It's no wonder people are turning to Islam and cults looking for righteousness because they can no longer find it in the so-called body of Christ. I heard from our fathers, Lord God. I heard from our fathers. Yeah. 
Charles Spurgeon was one of our fathers. He was a Baptist. I used to be a Baptist. Charismatic Baptist I was. And I had a problem. The problem was churches together in England. Thinking to be ordained into the Baptist ministry, I had a problem because the Baptist Union sent a representative to London Bible College where I was about to graduate saying, if you don't agree, if you think we're trampling on the blood of the martyrs, you shouldn't apply to the Baptist ministry. So I contacted him privately as I was advised to do by the college to express my concern. The college thought I'd make a good Baptist preacher. Unfortunately, the Baptists didn't. <laughs> Maybe Spurgeon would have. And again, as I pointed out, I said, how can you do this? It betrays the Baptist principles. It betrays the Westminster Confession. It betrays what the Baptist fathers believed. He said, which Baptist fathers? I said, men like Bunyan and men like Spurgeon. And again, he retorted, well, they all disagreed with each other, didn't they? It's not about Rome. You want some quotes? His response, well, we have liberal Baptists. We have Baptist preachers who don't believe in the literal resurrection or the virgin birth. Catholics do. We're closer to Catholics who do believe those things than we are to Baptists who don't. And since we already have Baptists who aren't saved, why shouldn't we be in fellowship with the Catholic Church? That was his argument. Over 100 years ago, Charles Spurgeon warned what would happen to the Baptist Union in this country. Every prediction he made turned out to be right. Even in his day, he saw the way it was going and pulled out. I heard from our fathers. You go down there to Elephant and Castle in South London now, where Spurgeon preached, the place is a tomb. An odd historical marker to the legacy of Spurgeon. There's an ultra-fundamentalist in there whose doctrines deviate from Spurgeon's, especially concerning Israel and the Jews, which Spurgeon believed had a prophetic place. Not anymore. That place has Ichabod written all over it. The very church in which Spurgeon preached. Spurgeon's College. The Baptist Union names their Bible college after a Spurgeon who left the Baptist Union because he saw what would happen to it. Hypocrisy upon hypocrisy. No, I heard from our fathers. I heard from our fathers how 6,000 people three times a day would crowd into the Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear Spurgeon preach. How every time he preached, people fell down getting saved. But as Spurgeon won the Baptist, J.C. Ryle won the Anglicans. 
the first evangelical bishop of Liverpool. You go into the bookshop of that cathedral, now you'll find guidebooks toward the Beatles' houses. Come to Matthew Street. If I wanted to go see where the Beatles grew up, I'd go see where the Beatles grew up. They have a museum for the Beatles in Liverpool down by the Albert Dock. I don't go to a church to take the tour of the Beatles. That's what they sell in the bookshop. What they won't sell in the bookshop, however, are the books of their first bishop, J.C. Rahel. You won't find any of his books in there. In fact, you'll scarcely find any evangelical books in there. Liberal books, ecumenical books, and tour guides for the mercy. That you'll find. But the man who warned the Church of England to go back to the old path, he wrote a book warning to the churches, you won't find what Ryle wrote. To this day, Liverpool is about 70% Irish Catholic descent. If it was any man who loved Catholics and hated Catholicism, it was J.C. Ryle. He had a burden for their salvation, for the oppression that he saw them come, on, come under when they came over from Dublin during the potato famine and populated Liverpool. I had a love for Catholic people. A real love. Now right up the same street in Liverpool called Hope Street is the Catholic Cathedral, Paddy's Wigwam. They're in bed with each other. Initially, those cathedrals were built to rival each other. Now they want to just share the booty, because there's not much booty to go around. I heard from our fathers. I heard from our fathers. Liverpool's a godless city. And in Scotland, Samuel Rutherford, he's one of our fathers. A couple of years ago at New Year's, I happened to be in Scotland with my wife for New Year. And I got up in the morning, January 1st. It was the last New Year of the last millennium of 1999. And I turned on, I switched on the television in the morning in the place we were staying to watch the message by the leader of the Church of Scotland, Presbyterian, the moderator. He's like the Archbishop of Canterbury for the Presbyterians. Going to give his New Year message. I switched it on. He talked about everything. It was all on the agenda. Prison reform. When you went to look over there, out on their website, it was unbelievable. The things they were concerned with were even worse. Gay rights. He talked about everything except Jesus Christ. He did not mention Jesus Christ one time in his New Year address. Samuel Rutherford, page after page after page, he scarcely spoke of anything other than Jesus Christ. Yes, I heard from our fathers. Our Presbyterian fathers. 
John Wesley's one of our fathers. He's the founder of Methodism. As most people are aware. He's the man who didn't care what the Church of England that he grew up in thought about him. The church that ordained him, he didn't care. When they wouldn't let him into the pulpit in the church where he grew up, he went out into the graveyard and stood on his father's tomb and preached the gospel. Town to town. On horseback, village to village. He'd preach to two, he'd preach to 20,000. The clergy would organize riots against him, against his brother, and against Whitfield. Didn't stop him. He was banned. Church after church after church banned him. He was on an index of banned preachers. You read his journal, his diary, he tells you, I was thrown out of this church, 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 I was thrown out of this church. He brought revival to England. I heard from our fathers, Lord God. I heard from our fathers what the Methodists were and did. Now you're not going to find anything further from the truth of the gospel than the Methodists. They too ordain homosexuals. They close one church a week. And given how far they've gone from their own heritage, that's not such a bad thing. You know, I told a true story several years ago. I was in John Wesley's house on City Road in London. He's buried in the back garden on no more than 15 feet from his grave, marked by an obelisk, a pillar. I was upstairs in the room where he prayed for three hours a day for the salvation of England when he was not away itinerating. And I came downstairs and I spoke to the chaplain who was a semi-retired Methodist clergyman. And I said to him, tell me, do you have any preachers like John Wesley now? And he said, my word, yes. (laughs) So I asked him, and who might that be? He said, Lord Soper. Methodist member of the House of Lords was an atheist. I said, I noticed a few weeks ago, Reverend, that the Methodists at their annual conference voted to allow homosexuals and lesbians to be Methodist clergy. He said, yes, it's a matter of individual choice and conscience. Now I'm standing in John Wesley's house, 15 feet from his grave. So I asked him, can you tell me, Reverend, what do you think Mr. Wesley would have thought? Where would he have stood on the issue? This obviously never crossed his mind. He's the chaplain of the Methodist Museum. I'm in John Wesley's house, 15 feet from his grave. Rather pensively, he looks at me after giving the matter some thought. And he said, Well, I don't think Mr. Wesley would have agreed. (laughs) 
They don't think he would have agreed. Huh? John Wesley was a man who preached and lived holiness. I said, look out that window. You see that stone in the garden? You notice how it's moving? You know, styles of music will vary. Taste will vary. But, as we always say, there is no doxology without theology. Jesus said the Father wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. If the lyrics are not biblical, God does not accept the worship. It is absolutely astounding. How people sing choruses mindlessly, without thinking. Not realizing it becomes a kind of Christian mantra, predisposing them to hypnotic induction, so they'll fall down or whatever. When you consider the lyrics of Isaac Watts or Charles Wesley or Augustus Toplady, you can be sure of one thing. Every word of every hymn was scriptural. And so many of the great hymns were composed here. Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross. Robert Robinson, come now, sound of every blessing. Charles Wesley, and can it be that I should gain? Augustus Toplady, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. These hymns were all composed in England by people who knew what they believed. One of the things you see today, you know how people get caught up in crazy doctrine in large parts? They repetitively sing choruses with unbiblical lyrics. Inherent in these lyrics are the undertones of triumphalism, dominion theology, all this craziness, and they get sucked into the doctrine of it, the false doctrine, through mindlessly singing the hymns or the choruses. That are not even Christocentric, they're not even focused on Christ, they're focused on themselves. As Isaiah wrote, Woe to the crown of the proud drunkards of the crime, the self edification. Those are not the kind of hymns that were written by Augustus Toplady or Isaac Watts or Charles Wesley. It was different then. I heard from our fathers. I think of William Williams. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. These hymns meant something. Smith Wigglesworth. 
one of the founders of British Pentecostalism, associated with the Assemblies of God. I was actually in the room he died at an Assemblies of God church in Wakefield. Smith Wigglesworth never actually wrote anything. We have a problem. Most of what people say about him is, I heard from so-and-so that he did this or said that. I actually know some people, very elderly people in Yorkshire, who remember him as little kids. A few of them. Now, when you meet somebody who knew somebody like that, you want to talk to them. What would Smith Wigglesworth have made out of the Toronto experience? Oh no, we never saw anything like that. People may have attributed things to him that he never actually wrote or said, or they heard from somebody. Now I admit Pentecostalism went wrong at an early point, but there were people who came along and put grain into the poison stew. You had people like Aaron Linford and David Powell who came along and they made Pentecostalism biblical. It stood for something. It was something. It rocked this nation. I can't think of any more than a handful of Assemblies of God churches in this country I'd set my foot in. And probably less than that that has even let me set my foot in it. <laughs> they may have the same name, Assemblies of God, but they don't believe what was believed 30 years ago. The name in the buildings may have been hijacked, but it is a different movement. This has nothing to do with early Pentecostalism. Talk to the old-time Pentecostals, they'll tell you. In the 1940s, the 1950s, all this craziness, the William Branham stuff, it was rejected. The Manifest Sons, the Latter-day Reign, the Assemblies of God, rejected it as heretical. The Kenyan stuff was rejected. That's not Pentecost. That's not typical. That stuff is apostate. Now it's mainstream. This is a book called Healing Rays, written by George Jeffries. He's the founder of Elam. Elam was not always an apostate cult that it is today. It was probably the most doctrinally sound Pentecostal church in the world. The word of God was held in such high esteem by Elam that when Jeffries went into the errors himself of British Israelism, his own ministers, men he led to the Lord, stood up against him and said, Brother Jeffries, this is wrong. That is how much they respected the Word of God. You will not have found the Pentecostal church in the world more doctrinally solid than the Elam movement. Now it is Satan's import agency to bring one conniver into this country after another from the States and from wherever. Didn't used to be like that. Didn't used to be like that at all. Elam meant something. I heard from our fathers, Lord God. I heard from our fathers what you did in that day.
perhaps our last truly great father in this country was the Welshman Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He believed in spirit baptism and he was not a cessationist. When F.F. Bruce went to be with the Lord, that was the last truly great British Bible scholar. When Martin Lloyd-Jones went to be with the Lord, that was the last truly great British preacher. There's been nobody of his stature since. He stood in Westminster Chapel in Victoria in London. And I have audio cassettes of his and I listen to it. And amazingly, time and time he says the same stuff I'm saying. I didn't know he said it, but when you have somebody like him of his caliber saying the same stuff, it helps you know you're on the right track. I'm so amazed by his exposition. What a man of God he must have been. Queen's physician, man with a medical background, who went into the ministry. Only to have his pulpit inhabited by a maniac from America who promoted the Toronto, the Pensacola, the Kansas City false prophets. A place where the decent people were forced to leave. They couldn't stand it anymore. A crazy man standing in the pulpit teaching crazy doctrine. The last pulpit. The last preacher. He was the end of it. He was the end of it. You hear this accent? Why is there a yank up here? This is no more Brits. I heard from our fathers. I heard from our fathers. I know the way it used to be in Westminster Chapel. When Martin Lloyd-Jones was there, when Dr. Campbell Morgan was there, it was different then. It meant something. It stood for something. I've been downhill ever since. George Mueller is one of our fathers. He was from the Plymouth Brethren, as were so many wonderful people, especially missionaries. Dr. Bernardo was Brethren. Hudson Taylor was Brethren. Watchman Nee was Brethren. George Mueller made a difference. For thousands and thousands of destitute youth in Bristol, something whose influence permeated everywhere. The brethren really stood for something. Now the biggest lunatic fringe deceivers in this country are people from brethren backgrounds. General Coates, the late Bryn Jones, Roger Foster, these guys were brethren. They knew the truth. So now you got a choice. You have the demonic deceptions and lunacy and heresy of the Restoration Movement, or you have a little chapel with ten old people meeting in it waiting to close its door for the last time. That's what's become of the brethren. 
I heard from our fathers, Lord God. I heard from our fathers. That's what the psalmist wrote. We heard from our fathers how you conquered our enemies in that day. But now our enemies, they conquer us. We are trampled rather under their feet and we are mocked. They take our spoil, we're defeated. We're given over to humiliation, to ridicule. What have we brought upon ourselves? Oh God, please, as you did in the days of our fathers, show us mercy. And so it goes on. Our fathers. I heard from our fathers. Our Anglican fathers. Our Baptist fathers, our independent evangelical fathers, I heard from our brethren fathers, our Episcopal fathers, I heard from our Presbyterian fathers. I heard from our Methodist fathers. I heard from our Pentecostal fathers. I heard from our Reformed fathers. Our fathers. What does the history mean if we don't live up to it? These are our fathers. There it is. I'm standing in the graveyard of the spiritual history of this nation where our fathers are buried. Their legacy, their beliefs, what they bequeathed us, here it lies. Nobody even thinks about it. While our enemies go from triumph to triumph. And those few like Ray Belays or Tony Pierce, those few who try to stand up and say, stop this, are banned, slandered, barred. I have a fear, dear friends. I have a fear. Yes, I want God to show us mercy. But I have this fear that haunts me. I would almost say this fear haunts me nearly every day of my Christian life. It's something that every time I read it, it makes me shudder. It's from the 14th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. Verse 14. The sin had gone so far, the rejection of the truth had reached such a point, the abandonment of their biblical heritage 
had become so acute, the persecution of the true prophets became so intense, there was no turning back now. And God said, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. But they couldn't save the country anymore. There's not enough salt and light left for that. Noah, Daniel, and Job could save their own neck, but they couldn't save this nation. My fear is that the same thing has become, or is at least fast becoming, true of Britain. Even if Wesley and Tyndale were here, even if Wycliffe and Spurgeon were here, they would save their own necks, but they can't save the church of this backslidden country anymore. Yes, your fathers were righteous. They had it right. They stood faithfully on my word. Yes, if Tyndale was here, if Wesley was here, if George Mueller was here, they would save their own necks. If John Bunyan was here, he would save his own neck. But as for the rest of it, it's gone too far for too long. That is my fear. If that can happen to Israel and the Jews, it can happen to Britain. It can happen to America. If he didn't spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either, says the Lord. That is my fear. Before we come to the Lord's table, I'd like to do something. I would like to beg the God of our fathers, for the sake of our fathers, not for our sake. We're told in Romans 11, the Jews remain beloved for the sake of Abraham, not for their own. Maybe somehow, just a drop of that same grace can fall upon the church in this nation. Maybe just for the sake, for the sake of Wycliffe, for the sake of what he was, for the sake of Tyndale, for the sake of the Oxford martyrs, just a drop of that grace will fall on this nation. That the God of our fathers, for the sake of our fathers, would have mercy.